Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, I hope you're finding a bit of peace this week after a roller coaster of an election. Of course, the dust hasn't quite settled yet, and there is certainly a lot of work ahead, particularly when it comes to bridging some pretty cavernous divides in our country. These are not just political, but also cultural, and once again, issues related to religion and religious communities are at the center of the conversation. For today's show, I was honored to be joined by Maggie Siddiqui, Director of the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative at the Center for American Progress, and Reverend Dr. Gabriel Zaguero, President and Founder of the National Latino Evangelical Coalition. In our conversation, my guests talk about their own stories of religious formation, their current advocacy work, and how their communities are responding to the change in administration. So without further ado, it's time to get into some interfaith-ish. I'm very excited to have you both with me this week as we're thinking about this historic moment that we're living in and really what may be in front of us. And um, I'm particularly excited to have the, the both of you uh, individually on this, on this show. Maggie and I have known each other for a while. I think first through, through mutual friends and then being on the interfaith scene together in DC and um, now and again getting to, to collaborate here and there. And uh, we're actually neighbors, more or less, now in the same neighborhood in DC. Uh, so I get to see see Maggie in, in a few different capacities. And and Rev Salgari, you and I both uh, share actually growing up in New Jersey. And I uh, I wanted to start there and just hear about. Um, even though you're you're not in New Jersey anymore, you're you're currently down in Florida, right? Yeah, I live in Orlando, Florida, but born and raised in New Jersey. Great. So I wanted to I wanted to start there and just hear about uh, where was it you grew up in New Jersey? What was your religious life? like there? Yeah, I was born in Long Branch, New Jersey. It's the central Jersey shore of New Jersey and raised in a town called Lakewood, New Jersey, which is oh, Lakewood. Actually, yeah, Great. actually quite diverse, a large uh, Hasidic community, a large Hispanic community, African-American community. So it was really culturally and religious diverse. I'm a pastor's kid, so both my mother and father are ordained clergy and so i grew up in the church in uh, probably one of the more challenging neighborhoods in lakewood mm-hmm. and lakewood lakewood's one of those unique places where you can get some some really good schnitzel right across from the uh like Honduran party cd spot right you can that's exactly right it's a it's a fascinating you got Honduran delicacies and schnitzel right next to each other <laughs> So yeah, so you were saying so you're so you grew up in the church. Were you yourself? Were you a uh, right from from the get go an ardent believer and confirmed in the church as a youth? I was. I was. I grew up in the church. Went through youth min- children's ministry and youth ministry, and and so I from childhood to adulthood, I I was in the church. Not perfect, but pretty faithful attendee and member of of the church where my parents pastored. Uh, until I myself became a pastor. Yeah, I, I find that sometimes that can that can cut two ways, right? It can either be that you're 
you're right there on the straight and narrow, you know, as a, as a youth, or uh, hear stories of folks that really rebel against that. But it sounds like you were happy to be part of your, your uh, parents' vocation as well. Oh, it was a, gr- it was a great faith community. Not pr- again, not perfect, neither they nor I, but it was a great <laughs> faith community. Uh-huh. So was, was, there, was there something that was um, uh, a particularly formative experience for you? You know, I think about, you know, as you're, as you're growing up as a, as a young man, we, uh, we, we get tests from different times, different, you know, parts of our, parts of our life. So I'm wondering, you know, as, as somebody that eventually became a religious leader yourself, was there a particularly formative experience that shaped your current worldview? I, I think the authenticity of the church I grew up in and my mm. the moral leadership of my parents, um, mm. that they saw faith as transformative, right? And so we had, I grew up in a church that was very active, soup kitchens, uh, mm. drug rehab programs. And I think that comes deeply from my father, who was the lead pastor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had, he was a, he was a heroin addict before his conversion. Oh, wow. And so he was, he was homeless, heroin addict, uh, formerly incarcerated person, a mm. uh, member of, of a gang. And so because the gospel was so transformative for him, mm-hmm. uh, he's, he has spent all his life paying it forward in the, in, in a similar fashion. My mother who came from a very dysfunctional home, alcoholism, um, the faith was transformative. And so I think that, 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 that transformative value of, of faith. And in our case, the gospel of, of Christ is, mm-hmm. is, is shown through. It wasn't a large church, several hundred people, but there was always that, Hey, how can we add value? How can we be a healing presence? and a renewing presence. And so there was always a kind of practical social application to, to the Gospels from mm-hmm. childhood. And that was very formative uh, for me, that, that nobody was beyond the grip of grace and transformation. And, and your parents, were they also from the area? No, my, my parents uh, were b- born and raised in Ponce, Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And so they came actually to New Jersey the year before I was born in 1972. So now I'm dating myself, but um, <laughs> so uh, I, um, my parents are a Puerto Rican ancestry. And so mm-hmm. I, actually both my older brothers were born in Puerto Rico. And oh, wow. my, yeah, my sister and I were here born on, on the mainland. Great. So, so I want to uh, shift over to Maggie as well and hear a little bit about, about for you, what was, what was your your um, religious life growing up, and where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Mitchellville, Maryland, um, which is just outside of D.C. I was raised Baptist. Um, I also am a descendant of clergy. <laughs> My father oh, okay. was a pastor, uh, a, a Baptist minister, um, though he had changed careers a couple times <laughs> by the time I was born. Uh-huh. Um, his parents were Baptist missionaries to Chile, which is where he grew up and met my mother. Hmm. Um, his, you know, my, my grandfather's father was a Baptist minister in South Carolina. Like I, I come from a long line of clergy and, and as you know, I'm, I'm Muslim now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that, you know, that sort of spiritual, spiritual heritage, if you will, is still, like very much in my DNA. <laughs> yeah. So tell tell us a little bit about that that story. How did you encounter Islam, and and what was it that uh, eventually confirmed you in uh, as a Muslim? 
in many ways, it was kind of accidental. I mean, I, um, I was interested in uh, pursuing a career in ministry myself when I started college. Hmm. And I majored in religion. And I remember feeling uh, very guilty that I didn't know a lot about uh, this major world religion of Islam. And um, so I started learning more. And um, I, I guess the, the easiest way to put it is that in some ways my heart converted long before my head. <laughs> okay. And I, it was really a matter of kind of reconciling, um, you know, w- where my where my heart had already taken me to. Was it a very individual process or were you were you there with a community in that journey? So I I picked up a Quran from the local library back home over winter break and started reading uh-huh. and I said, I know this voice. I've heard it before. This mm. is the voice of God that I've read in the in the Bible. And I, I that was that was, as you can imagine, a very uh, challenging process. Mm. Um, and the thought of leaving the religion that was so dear to me in order to to embrace this new thing I had found was an incredibly um, heart wrenching and difficult experience because um, you know as as I've said that was that was very important to me it still is very important to me but I, mm-hmm. I found that I could still um, again hold that kind of uh, spiritual heritage and 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 honor what my parents had taught me and do that through this uh through this new faith and so that and and that part of kind of acceptance was something i did with the help of um the chaplains at the muslim chaplains at my university who were really oh, what was that what school this was at wesleyan university um the first oh, okay chaplain I had was Abdullah Antepli, who is now at uh, Duke University. Hmm. He, he told me not to convert. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, he went with me Strange response, but all right. They were very wonderful, but I think also experiencing um, uh, the way that they practice their Islam, experiencing um, this really wonderful, tiny, tiny Muslim community mm. at Wesleyan was also, um, it was such a, such a blessing and, and made it feel like, um, yeah, something that I could ultimately do. And it seems like it, it's not just been a personal practice, um, but what I've observed is that you've really, you know, made your, your faith and activities that, that in, involve your faith um, in, in action a, a central part of your life, much in the way that Rev. Salguero, you were talking about your um, your family being out in the community and being of service. I see you, Maggie, also, you know, working with various organizations that are they're working on whether issues of religious freedom or advocacy or what have you. So um, I'm curious if you could you could tell us a little bit about about the um, the groups that you work with right now and and how it is that you. Um, are building bridges between people of different religious backgrounds. Um, sure, yeah, it, and and you know maybe part of the my uh, being drawn to these multi faith coalitions comes from uh, my having experienced uh, multiple faiths throughout. Sure, the sure. But, no, I I know that feeling for sure. <laughs> yes, yes, you would, of course. Um, 
I so you know of course I'm a part of um, Muslim communities here in the DC area and connected digitally across the country and then in my work I lead the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative at the Center for American Progress um, and our work is essentially to um, bring together diverse religious communities and ensure that their their communities and their concerns are represented in public policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, it's been really powerful. I mean, just even thinking about the kind of work we did around the election, you know, we are a think tank, not a, not a grassroots organization, but, um, you know, we could support the work of faith organizers that were engaging in voter turnout and, um, you know, make sure that they had the resources that they needed and the connections that they needed, um, in the event of, you know, threats of voter intimidation or, um, Mm -hmm. if they were experiencing, uh, disinformation around the election and that sort of thing. And so, um, it's been a, a really valuable experience to be able to do that in a coalition that brings together, um, essentially, uh, you know, a wide variety of religious communities from across America that are, that we're experiencing this all, um, all at the same time, you know? Yeah. And I, I want to pick up on that point, uh, Rev Salgaro, with you, um, to, to hear a bit about the experience of the Hispanic evangelical community in particular. Um, but, and, and just to hear from you, what, what you've, what you were, have, have been seeing this past year during this very, um, tense um, uh, election process campaign season. As you know, uh, the Hispanic Latino Latina demographic in the U.S. is growing. It's there are about sixty million Hispanics living in the United States. Um, Thirty-two million Latino registered voters, and I live in Florida. We're mm-hmm. about seventeen percent of the electorate. Um, and a, a large portion of us are either Catholic or evangelical, although there's Jewish, Muslim, we're, we're sure. Latinos and Latinas are not a monolith like any other group. There. We're not monolithic. I think that one of the things that we were deeply concerned about is that we were being defined beyond ourselves, that when pundits and religion reporters and political analysts talked about evangelicals, they ignored Hispanic evangelicals. Mm which is over 9 million of us and over 3 million registered voters. And so when you see the word evangelical in a newspaper or you hear it um, in political analysis on television or on the radio, you have an image. And it's usually not of a brown or a black or an Asian uh, or or an African or African-American or indigenous evangelical. And I think that we were really concerned about our invisibility. Mm. Conversely, when you hear the word Latino, Latina, there is a pigeonholing, if you will, of how Latinos and Latina votes. And so because we kind of straggle, straddle that great diversity of evangelicalism and of hispanicity, it's important to raise up, it's part of the reason my wife and I, Jeanette Jeanette and I began the National Latino Evangelical Coalition to show both the great diversity of hispanicity or Latinidad in the US and the great diversity of evangelicalism in America. And so white evangelicals, my dear brothers and sisters, do not 
speak for us. There's things we have in common, but we have our own priorities, our own foci, and our very own challenges and mm -hmm. promise. Conversely, Hispanics are not a monolith. And so the, that is important as we talk about the kind of great mosaic that is America, that Hispanic evangelicals, an increasingly quintessential and decisive voter in states like Florida, Nevada, Colorado, mm -hmm. uh, and Georgia even, uh, Pennsylvania for sure, uh, that, 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 that nuance and complexity and texture is being brought to the conversation. And, and you have this interesting experience, perhaps, per, perhaps not unique exactly, but informative of, of having been raised in um, the New York, New Jersey area, worked there for a long time, now in Florida. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if, if from your perspective, you know, if you're talking about uh, the Puerto Rican community in, in particular, or, or more broadly, the Hispanic evangelical community, you know, what are the, how, how is that outreach happening during the campaigns? Um, and I'm curious if you feel like it was effective given the issues that matter particularly to Hispanic evangelicals. So let's just talk about, as I'm so glad you, you underscored that, right? Puerto Ricans in Orlando, Florida, and Cubans in South Florida. 55% of Cubans voted for President Trump, while 70% of Puerto Ricans in Central Florida voted for President-elect Biden. Mm. Uh, and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. And and then if you go to Maricopa County in Arizona, which is more Mexican-American, a large group of Mexican-Americans voted for Vice President-elect Biden, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, and a smaller group voted for President Trump and Vice President uh, Pence. And so right there, you see the diversity from Puerto Ricans in Central Florida, Cubans and Venezuelans in Southern Florida, mm -hmm. Mexican-Americans in, in the Phoenix area. If I wanted to go Puerto Ricans in, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. in, in Lancaster County, in, Pef in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Puerto Ricans in New York, uh, Salvadorians in Maryland and Virginia. Th this is one of the biggest challenges for political outreach because we're not a monolith and because right. our priorities vary from region to region. And so I will tell you that the Latino community, even the Latino evangelical community that I served in New York is quite distinct in political priorities than the Latino evangelical community I serve in Central Florida. Mm -hmm. And so in my congregation, there's a broad swath uh, of voters and their priorities are go from immigration reform to dealing with kind of xenophobic rhetoric to criminal justice reform to pro-life to religious liberty. It is such a milieu of issues that, that Latino evangelicals uh, take. And depending on where they are in the country, their priorities may vary. Mm -hmm. and, in, and in Florida, what are, you, what are you seeing there on the ground since you've been there now for a while? Look, I think that uh, President Trump was very politicized shrewd in reaching out to Hispanic evangelicals. The Evangelicals for Trump rally was launched in a Hispanic evangelical megachurch in the Miami area. Uh, Vice President Pence came to Orlando, Kissimmee multiple times. And so I, I think there was some real intentionality from the Trump-Pence campaign to know that of the Latinos, the, the group they could probably 
court most effectively is Hispanic evangelicals or, or Hispanic Catholics who are conservative. Mm-hmm. Conversely, the the Biden campaign with full transparency, I met with Vice President Biden and and, and I had a Zoom conference with uh, uh, Vice President-elect uh, Harris, they they understood that they were losing ground in the Latino community in the last several mm. months. But I would say, if I'm just doing a kind of objective analysis, the Trump-Pence campaign started earlier and had a longer and more sustained conversation with Hispanic evangelicals in Florida. And I think that has much to do with the results you saw in Florida, not mm-hmm. the same other in other parts of the country. Well, Maggie, I want to ask what your experience was during this past week as as the results were evolving and what you were thinking about, how you were thinking about the possible outcomes, particularly in terms of um, how the Muslim community may be affected, um, given how, you know, there was so much demonization during the last um, few years with the ban and everything else. Right. Yeah. I mean, the 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 Trump administration's uh, last four years have had a pretty devastating impact on a number of religious communities, um, including Muslim communities. But just by way of example, the way that um, the administration politicized houses of worship and encouraged uh, gathering in person and that sort of thing, and 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 sort of tried to pit people of faith against. Uh, public health orders in their states and that kind of thing. Like that's had a really detrimental uh, impact on uh, religious communities and created polarization within our houses of worship. And then there has been, of course, the singling out of um, religious minority communities. One of uh, the first acts of the Trump administration was the Muslim ban, as you've mentioned. Hmm. Um, There's been pretty consistent anti-Semitic and Islamophobic rhetoric coming from uh, the White House. Um, we saw, you know, the, the most devastating, the, the most deadly, rather, attack on American Jewish communities ever uh, at, with the Tree of Life synagogue shooting. And, and, and that kind of rhetoric has been, um, it has been deadly, you know, for, for many communities of faith and, and um, uh, religious minority and, uh, and communities of color in particular. And so, you know, the prospect of continuing those kinds of policies for the next four years uh, was, of course, very, very concerning. Um, and um, I uh, am, am very happy that the Biden transition team has already stated on day one they plan to repeal the Muslim ban. My hope is that we will see similar other steps to um you know, it's going to be a process, but to to undo the harms that we've seen to our religious freedom, uh, the harms that are coming from white supremacy, and and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Russell Garrow, how about how about for you? Especially, I'm curious since you are in Florida, how have you seen congregations reacting to the results of the election, particularly in communities that have these diverse political views that you were you were speaking about, you know, and I, I guess I'm thinking particularly of congregations that have perhaps more of a, a mixed um, political perspective, um, whether from leaders or lay people. 
Look, I think that I, the the word that I would use is carefully, mm. carefully, because there's there's divisions among families, and so you have parents who voted for Trump and and adult children who voted for Biden, and so so there's some celebration. I th- I think uh, Maggie speaks well. To, there there's been some real anguish and lament and grief. Uh, around some of the xenophobic rhetoric, around the separation of children from their parents at the border, around the Muslim ban. I'm, I'm part of an evangelical immigration table that mm-hmm. that publicly uh, decried and lamented the Muslim ban as as a as a an attack on religious liberty and freedom. And so there are some people who who are celebrating a transition, who who feel that the Trump rhetoric and policies uh, were detrimental to the flourishing of their communities. Conversely, there are other people in Florida who are uh, strong and staunch Trump supporters, particularly around issues of, of, of pro-life and, and religious liberty as they define it. And so they, they have deep lament. Some of them are finding it difficult to accept the results. That's why our coalition, uh, days before the election was decided, we said we have to respect the democratic process and respect the results mm-hmm. of the election. And so there's a there is a tempered celebration for for those who voted for for Biden and Harris, and there is some kind of open lament by for those who supported Trump and Pence in the mixed communities. Now, if you're more part of a monolithic community, you find the expression either on the lament and kind of uh, refusal to accept side much more audible or Mm, on the celebration mm -hmm. side. But when you're in a Mm -hmm. mixed community, there is this there is this kind of what I like to call civil celebration in a way that that tries not to rub the nose in it that calls for unification and healing. But at the same time says, no, we we are glad that this happened for the reasons they they have enumerated. This is an interest group that is just growing and growing with each passing year in terms of its importance in the American landscape. It needs to advocate for its interests and and is, is definitely doing that on a number of different levels. So I'm curious how with the different leadership groups that you are part of in um, the Hispanic Christian community, what that conversation has been like or maybe is is like this even this week, thinking about what lies ahead I think there's a deep awareness of our political power and influence for several reasons. In the Hispanic Christian communities, in, in our coalition, there's a deep awareness, but across kind of Hispanic faith communities, because we are one of the few groups that is still literally up for grabs, that no party can take us for granted. And so mm. I think that, and because we're determinative in some key swing states, we are determined. In, in in Florida, the Hispanic vote was like 51% Biden, 48% Trump or something mm-hmm. like that. And so we know that we are determinative in, in, in states like that. And because of that, there's a push to not necessarily endorse candidates, but to have candidates endorse our priorities because we know that we're the quintessential swing voters. Now I'm talking about Hispanic evangelicals uh, Mm -hmm. in particular. So there's a a real awareness. I think the other thing is to, to move our people to civic engagement that is informed. 
beyond just national elections, but especially midterm elections where our participation uh, drops off precipitously. There mm. is a major drop off between a national election and a midterm election. So that, we'll that see what happens. Isn't sustained well, from from the candidates? Uh, is is it that, or is it more of a, a interest from the community? I think it's both, but I think mm -hmm. that that uh, I think there's interest from the community wanes, but I also think that the the sustained engagement from candidates. I think in Georgia may be interesting. There's a large growing, and there's going to be a January runoff. We'll see what happens with uh, African American and Latino engagement in 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 that state, especially since the Senate is going to be decided right. uh, in Georgia. But I, historically speaking, it is a precipitous. Uh, fall between national and presidential elections and midterm elections that decide the Senate or the House or or even local elections. So what we're seeing or, or what I'm seeing is that, that we're aware of of our growing power and influence and capacity to shape policy and maybe even capacity to to overcome uh, inertia for bipartisan mm. efforts around immigration reform, mm -hmm. around criminal justice reform, around earned income tax credit and child tax credit, around poverty uh, initiatives and the social safety net. I think we're becoming acutely aware because as an evangelical, Republicans want to meet with me. And as mm -hmm. a Hispanic, Democrats want to meet with me. And by me, I don't mean me, the person, but our group, our constituency. And so that is a that is a, a very influential place to be. And I think we need to steward that influence in a way that moves for the flourishing and policies that lead to, to human flourishing and the flourishing of our country. And so I think there's a acute awareness of our growing influence. What I'm not sure of is if we've taught and learned how to best steward that influence in a way that helps not just our community, but everyone. Yeah, it sounds like a, an, an important uh, growth moment on, on a number of different levels. No, it's a, it, in our tradition, we call it a Kairos moment. Kairos it's a, moment. It's a, it's a determinative moment. When, when, you, when you become aware that, okay, now we're be taking, you know, 32 million of us, we became the largest voting minority in the United States. We were up 5 million from 2016, right? We were 27 million in 2016. We're 32 million. At this rate, by the next election, we'll be close to the 40 million uh, uh, voters. One out of every four children born in the U.S. is Hispanic. One out of every two is a child of color. And so mm -hmm. they, we're aware. There's this kind of aware and empowerment. Now the question is, now that you're aware, now that you feel empowered, how do you educate, mobilize to get policies that empower people, especially the most vulnerable among us. Right, right. Well, Maggie, I want to um, ask you as well, what do you see as the path ahead, the challenges or opportunities as we're thinking about this time of transition between administrations and uh, what are your hopes for the year? Yeah, I want to just echo uh, for a second what Reverend Salguero said just in terms of um, you know, what the impact of the growing racial and religious diversity is on American politics and American civic engagement. Um, even, you know, as you know, Muslim communities are the most uh, diverse religious community in America. Um, our voting patterns uh, have uh, not always <laughs> been consistent. Um, I think it was the 2000 election. Most, um, uh, the majority of Muslims actually voted for George W. Bush. Mm. Uh, no, think, I didn't realize that. 
things have changed uh, since right. then. In 2016, um, Muslims were very much an issue on the table um, as opposed to a community whose um, votes were considered uh, to be impactful at all. Um, Muslim community only accounts for about one, is it 1% of the American population. And so electorally, I, I don't think there's uh, been a lot of investment there. Um, but the, the Biden campaign did hold a um, major Muslim outreach event earlier this year, which was uh, virtually unprecedented. And then we saw how close, um, you know, things turned out in Michigan, where there there is a, a fairly high concentration of Muslims who could very well have uh, tipped the election in mm-hmm. Biden's favor in Michigan. And so I, I just want to echo that I think even with, within our communities, there's a greater understanding of the kind of impact that we can have uh, in the political process and what it means to be civically engaged and what it means to um, have all of our issues considered. The Muslim ban is, you know, only affects uh, some of our um, of our communities that um, have, you know, uh, close family and friends overseas from the from those countries. We have um, Black and uh, Indigenous and, and, and other uh, communities within the American Muslim community that are not directly affected by that, but are affected by the white supremacy, are affected by um, you know, COVID are affected by any number of public policy issues where uh, we're going to be, um, you know, very much interested in, uh, you know, what, what the Biden administration will do. And um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing what the administration does. I think that um, th- everything sort of points to uh, there being a more robust religious outreach mechanism coming um, mm. from the White House, which uh, I think will do a better job than we've seen from past administrations at uh, reaching out to our diverse religious communities and really understanding and, and, and attempting to resolve those concerns. But um, yeah, look, looking forward to seeing kind of what that looks like and seeing how our communities uh, claim, claim that power that they, uh, that they have. That's that's great, and I, I think the uh, the the phrase that I that I heard uh, this past week about about Biden's win, particularly in Michigan, was "See, this is what happens when you say Inshallah, right? That's what." Yeah. <laughs> I loved that. I I also heard there was a Jack Jenkins reported there was a sign from the White House that said, "Turning Inshallah into Mashallah." <laughs> in effect, in in turning uh, if God wills into God has willed it. <laughs> Lots of, uh, yeah, yeah, plays on words there in the Muslim community and and absolutely folks celebrating uh, that the president-elect used a term that is uh, so often used in our community. Yeah, you just have to coach him a little bit on the pronunciation, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, well, it sounds like it sounds like on on both sides, interesting to hear that um, within the Muslim community and and uh, within the Hispanic evangelical community that that there's this 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 theme of cautious optimism or hope. Does that does that sound about right to to both of you from what you're hearing from each other? I I think that we are prisoners of hope. To mm. quote the the Jewish prophet Zephaniah. 
but I, I don't think we're Pollyanna about it. We have to be mm-hmm. vigilant of our democracy and independent of who we voted for. We hold candidates accountable. Um, we have a lot of work to do around issues of immigration and around issues of uh, um racial tensions and, and criminal. So we are hopeful and vigilant. And so we, that's the thing that I want to say. And I want to say that COVID-19, you know, is a pressing issue in our community and communities uh, around the country that have been disproportionately impacted. And so we're hopeful, but we're also, uh, to quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we have a sense of the fierce urgency of now for some mm. of these longstanding and, and quite frankly, life-threatening issues like COVID-19, uh, poverty, uh, a whole host of immigration, children. Uh, I, I, I sound like a broken record, but especially issues of poverty um, mm-hmm. and, and children. And so we're hopeful, but we're vigilant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I um I think also that, you know, the the past four years have demonstrated that who is in charge really matters. Um, But I think also uh, to that point, like it's not going to the problems will not disappear overnight because of an election. The pandemic is still upon us. There are problems that are going to take a lot of work um, to solve, not just from the top, but from our active engagement uh, with our elected officials and making sure that um, those concerns are addressed through public policy. It's going to take a lot of hard work, um, I think, on all of us to make sure that that happens and uh, and that the administration is is able to uh, accomplish the kinds of, uh, you know, policy aspirations that it's setting forward. Well, this has been a very stimulating conversation. I, as we do each episode, I want to reserve some time for uh, my guests to ask questions of each other. That's a, a unique feature of our show that that we love to have. Uh, you know, this is a an opportunity for real interfaith dialogue. Usually, a lot of things that are are interfaith are actually just multi-faith in the sense that they are. They are sort of parallel presentations, but there there isn't um, much cross in engagement. And and certainly with my my two guests that I have here today, um, who have so much experience and, and a wealth of, of knowledge and and um, um, yeah experience working within your communities, I want to um, g- give the opportunity for you all to follow up on any questions about anything that uh, our your your other guest has shared today that you want to learn more about, hear more about, uh, clarify if it might have been something that you misunderstood. Um, Rev Salguero, do you have any any um, questions for Maggie? Well, uh, I'm very interested in seeing where she sees the potential for continued interfaith partnership on issues of policy in, in the next four years, uh, as, especially in, in some of these uh, intractable challenges, whether it's criminal justice or, or, or the social safety net, and where she has seen best practices, uh, this happening, that that people in our community can learn from uh, and help build to scale. Ooh, not, a, not an easy question. Um, <laughs> Just got I that mean, answer right in your pocket, right? <laughs> I do think that we have a lot of, um, a lot of opportunities 
for uh, working together. I think, you know, you know very well from um, probably from your experiences with criminal justice reform and immigration that I think those are two spaces where um, communities with radically different political views have been able to come together and uh, work for um, for real change in those areas. I know we had uh, we saw federal legislation get passed on criminal justice reform um, that was uh, supported by many uh, uh, progressives and um, and uh, you know uh, passed with uh, bipartisan support. Um, sorry, progressives and conservatives and passed with bipartisan support um, on on uh, immigration. I think that's an area um, where uh, folks have been uh, on a more conservative side have been willing to push back when they've seen um, representatives who they otherwise support um, making wrong choices there. And I think that that will um, that will continue to see progress on those fronts. Um, I think there are some other areas such as racial justice and climate change that have been less often kind of considered issues of, of uh, opportunity across different faiths and across different uh, political lines and where there may be some opportunity in the years ahead as well. And I'm uh, really excited to see that. Well, I, if I could have a follow-up, Maggie, thank you for that. I, and I do think that the areas you highlighted are, are spot on. And I do think there's more promise around issues of climate change and and uh, and racial justice and and hopefully also around the social safety net I hope that yes. people of faith um, yeah. would, would be able to speak to that I and where do you see the the big possible pitfalls to continue to divide us especially now right now I'm talking about issues of, of, of faith across faith and interfaith where, where do you see the perils? Or the warning signs that you say, hey, maybe moral and spiritual leadership needs to be aware of this so we don't continue to polarize ourselves. Um, well, I, th I think as you kind of noted earlier, there are very different understandings of what religious liberty means um, in the United States. And uh, certainly as someone who is part of a religious minority community, I felt that I have really experienced um, threats to religious freedom against my community, both in terms of violence and then in terms of just overt discrimination through the Muslim ban and, and through public policy. And uh, meanwhile, I know there has been a kind of um, opposing, <laughs> if you will, agenda around religious liberty, which has been um, primarily uh, focused on sort of socially conservative issues and protection of those through mechanisms around religious liberty that have in fact led to uh, uh, the loss of religious re liberty for religious minority communities where sort of exemptions from non-discrimination laws uh, for faith-based organizations in the name of religious liberty have actually led to discrimination against Jews, Catholics, other religious minorities. Um, that's getting into a real like policy wonky area, but I think that um, I'm hopeful <laughs> uh, that you know with the with the coming administration we can have some real conversations about what religious liberty means and what that ought to look like. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm 
I'm hopeful that we'll get there, but I think it, it will require some uh, real intense uh, conversations <laughs> um, within our coalitions. Well, Maggie, can I just say one thing about the Muslim ban? I'm sorry. As an evangelical leader in this country, it should never have happened. And no, no one of any faith or of no faith and of good, uh, you know, good principle and who value our common good. And so let me say this as an evangelical to mi amiga eh, musulman. Lo lamento mucho. I am deeply sorry that that happened. And I and you will, at least in me and others like me, uh, find evangelicals who will stand up against religious bans on issues of immigration. And so I, I hope you hear that uh, today. Thank you. I, I very much appreciate that. I know that, uh, you know, these are not uh, the responsibilities of every of any uh, single one of uh of our um, uh, of our communities, um, and that these are problems that I'm I'm looking forward to addressing together. These and many others, um, uh, and I'm I'm really delighted to be able to have uh, have you as a friend and partner in this good work. Maggie, do you have any questions for Rosal Garrow? Yeah, I, I wanted to understand more i mean you've spoken a fair amount about um being you know both latino and evangelical and um i'm latina i did not i did not grow up evangelical uh, or baptist community identified more mainline and so i want to kind of understand more about what that what that term means to you in part because um you know i lo- i know there's a long history of that term but in the past few years it's almost like in public discourse come to mean a sort of cultural signifier for white Protestants with certain political views to the point that, you know, I'm sure you're aware, right, of all like the, you know, the ex-evangelical movement and evangelicals for social action renamed to Christians for social action. And I'm just wondering, like, um, what does that term still mean to you? Like, how do you feel about the way that it's being uh, claimed and disowned and, you know, all of those things. No, I think, thank you for that opportunity, Maggie. And so for me, evangelical is not a political nomenclature. It's a theological one that it comes from the, from the Greek, right? In the new Testament, euangelion, the good news. And to me, it's about our commitments, our theological concommitments of, of, our allegiance to the gospel, our allegiance to Christ, the authority of Scripture, um, and and to and to salvation, and 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 sharing that that good news, the Evangelion. I lament that it's been co-opted um, to identify solely with one ideology. I, I think that's idolatry, and I think that that we've offered, we've sacrificed. Now I'm talking about evangelicals too much to political expediency and political power, and and that that is lamentable, and that that is damages our credibility. In terms of being an evangelical, I think that means that we affirm that God loves all of humankind and all of creation, and we affirm the dignity of every human person and God's love for creation. And so, and so much so that, our, that it says in our tradition, we affirm that God gave God's son for that. And so we are, for me, I lament that, that 
we've been defined uh, politically and just with with kind of a a kind of ideology, a political ideology or partisan even not political, partisan ideology. I think we're a broader monolith than that. And I think younger evangelicals and evangelicals are of color pushing back against that. The second thing I would say is I, I, I refuse to give up the term evangelical. I, re, I understand and respect those who have because it's caused them damage, because it's hurt them. And, and I think it's perfectly within their right. And I, and I comprehend that. But I, I'm one to say, hey, I, let's redeem it. Let, let's, let's take it back to its core roots of the love of Christ. Uh, for your neighbor or, or the love of Christ for all people, whether they agree or disagree with you. So I'm, I'm in the, I'm on this kind of reclaiming and renewing evangelicalism in America in a way that is not as alienating to, to so many people, but that is back to its core roots of the message of, of Christ and, and scripture. That is my hope. Uh, and, and, and we've been doing that in our work to, with varying degrees of success and, failure but to, to quote one of my favorite uh, favorite poets we shall not go gentle into that dark night and so we're 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 hoping that more and more people will will claim evangelicalism not as a partisan ideology but as as what it was intended to when Christ first taught uh, us the gospel which is to love your neighbor as you love yourself thank you for the explanation i, I certainly wish you all the success in that Thank you. And uh, as a former member of, of the Board of Evangelicals for Social Action, I, I hope I'm successful. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has, been, this has been a really terrific conversation. Um, I, I want to just close by, by asking for each of you if you, would, if you would share one thing that you would hope that listeners to this program would know about, about your group, something that maybe is misunderstood that you, you would hope that people um, understand better or, or take the time to think more deeply about as they're moving in the world. Um, Maggie, do you have, do you have a thought on that? Oh, there, there are so many things <laughs> <laughs> um, that people do not know about, about American Muslims and about um, Islam. And so it's hard to, to pick one, I guess one that I kind of, um, one thing I referenced briefly earlier is just the absolute diversity of American Muslim communities. Um, I think it's about uh, a quarter to a third um, uh, of our American Muslim communities are black. Um, and then a another a quarter or so South Asian and then uh, Arab, there's about 5% that are um, Latinos like myself. <laughs> Um, and white as well. And so like there's absolute diversity of, um, of our cultural experiences, of um, the way that that shapes um, our uh, feelings about uh, politics and what issues are most important to us. So very similar to what Reverend Salguero was saying, there's absolute diversity in, uh, you know, within um, this community. And I think that's really important for folks to uh, to understand. Great, and I, I mean, I will put myself in that in that category. I for for all the time that we've known each other, I did not realize that you have um, Chilean heritage. So I'm <laughs> it, very excited to to learn more about that um, with you the next time we get to hang out. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. 
<laughs> um, Rev. Salguero, what, what about for you? Something that um, you'd like to leave our listeners with that, that you'd hope that they um, take the time to learn about and understand better? I would echo what Maggie has said, that evangelicals are not a monolith and that we're not one-issue voters and that Hispanic evangelicals are a distinct uh, group of evangelicals in America who have a broad swath of public policy priorities that need to be addressed. And so, so uh, pay serious attention to that growing demographic and, mm. and, and their issues and their concerns and their families. And then I would say is we need to continue to empower an informed Hispanic evangelical electorate uh, in ways that contribute to a more perfect union and, and the health of our nation. Beautiful. That's a, a great, great place to end things. Thank you so much for, for your time today. Really pre appreciate both of you uh, being able to join me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jack. Nice to meet you again, Maggie. Likewise. <laughs>Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank Maggie Siddiqui and Reverend Gabriel Salguero for being my guests this week. You can learn more about the Center for American Progress's faith initiative at AmericanProgress.org and the National Latino Evangelical Coalition at NALEC.org. That's N-A-L-E-C dot O-R-G. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz Miller, and our musical master, Jeff Philosopher. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of interfaith ish episodes wherever you find and enjoy podcasts. You can follow us on social media at interfaith ish. Leave us a voicemail on our special listener line, 202 599 2953. And keep writing us with the interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org.